Hello. What's up, everybody? You're listening to the Multiracial Mental Health Podcast, where each month we explore the complexities of mental health through the lens of multiracial identity. My name is Shireen Shuai, and I'm a licensed psychotherapist and mixed race woman of Black and Iranian descent. And I'm Madrone Love, a fellow therapist and mixed race woman of African American and Scottish Canadian descent. Together, we're here to bring you informative and authentic conversations with experts in the field of multiracial mental health. Hello again, everyone. Today, we're talking with Kelly Jackson and Gina Miranda Samuels, authors of the book Multiracial Cultural Attunement. Dr. Kelly Jackson is an associate professor in the School of Social Work within the Watts College of Public Service and Community Solutions at Arizona State University. Kelly previously served as the elected vice president of the Critical Mixed Race Studies Association. As a social worker and multiracial person, Kelly's research examines the identity development and overall well-being of persons of mixed racial and ethnic heritage. Gina Miranda Samuels is a professor at the University of Chicago Crown Family School of Social Work, Policy, and Practice, and is faculty director of the Center for the Study of Race, Politics, and Culture. Her scholarly interests include transracial adoption, mixed race and multi-ethnic identity formation, and critical and interpretive research methods. Okay, wonderful. Let's get into it. Okay. Um, Thank you. Welcome to the podcast. Okay, so why don't we start with, um, if you can tell us more about your path to social work and academic research, starting back as early as you feel comfortable. Oh my gosh. I'll let you go for an hour. hour? (laughs) One hour? It's story time. Yeah. All right, I'll get started. So if I were really going to start way, way, way back, but I won't say much, much about it, my very first relationship in my life was with a social worker and being the client of a social worker and placed into my family by that social worker. So that goes back pretty, pretty far. And then I was placed with a social worker. So um, Kelly will, I'm sure, share this also, but her mother, we were both uh, daughters of social work mothers. Uh, and so that had a huge shaping of my understanding of what a social worker was, which I later learned it was uh, maybe a little skewed, <laughs> um, in, in a positive way, you know? Um, so I have very high expectations for social workers and I also have very high expectations of, of white people, social workers in particular, because of my mother and what she modeled, uh, to me. And I did not get my start in social work. So I have a, a major in music. That's where I um, started in undergrad. And I also have a major in social work. So all my degrees are in social work. So I have a very strong um, identity, both personally and professionally as a social worker. And I also have a very strong identity as someone who um, was to was raised to think very um, social justice oriented, um, to be very proud of my black heritage. Um, as a mixed race person, um, and that has really sh- uh, shaped quite a bit about how I understand multiraciality, the politics that I bring to the topic of multiraciality, the politics and um, lived experience and professional expertise that I bring to the idea of transracial adoption and to child welfare. So I'll uh, stop there. I'm sure lots of pieces of my story will will come out as we talk, but that's um, that gives you a little bit about how deeply grounded and rooted I am 
within the field of social work and then also within the field of child welfare and multiraciality. Yes, very similar to Gina in thinking about um, having a mother who is a social worker and how that kind of naturally informs my inclination toward social work. I think when I was in college, um, I started off as a psych major and the lack of recognition of uh, socioeconomic issues, the history, um, even being able to say things like systemic racism, a lot of that wasn't there in the content. So for me, when I found social work, which seemed at the time, and I think I'm really struggling right now, Gina knows personally with recognizing social work isn't meeting all of its standards when it comes to our mission of social justice. But at the time, it was the only kind of major that was talking about that and contextualizing those important things. So I felt very welcome. Um, I think Gina can relate, and I'm guessing you both too, having uh, gone through um, PhD programs and education and academia in general, Often I was one of the only people of color in the room and I was always kind of bringing up um, issues of kind of systemic injustice and not having that really reflected back um, when it comes to different professors and, and different things. So at first I found social work um, and I think since, you know, 2020 and really recognizing um, how systemic racism is really inherent with the profession, I've been struggling a little bit um, with, with our profession's complacency in white supremacy um, and its kind of lack of social justice action um, and being able to um, really address uh, systemic anti-Black racism in particular. Thank you. And maybe I'll, I'll just follow up with, so both of your paths not only led you down the paths of social work and academia, but specifically on doing research around mixed uh, race people and multiracial families. Can you Share a little bit more about how that happened. Yeah, I guess um, for me, that was sort of an accident. I think I, you know, I very much grew up, uh, maybe not quite an accident, but it wasn't in as intentional as it might seem now looking back on my path. I can tell it in a very coherent way that seems like somehow this was all some inner plan of mine, but that, is, that would be a very wrong understanding of, of how I came to this moment. I, um, when I was a child welfare worker, I just started getting sent all these kids, all these biracial kids, mixed race families, a big chunk of my caseload as a caseworker in child welfare um, involved uh, children who I had placed with white families because that was the dominant uh, group of foster parents available in Madison, Wisconsin at the time. And my caseload was overwhelmingly black and biracial kids. So that's sort of how that happened, despite my politics at the time about my own lived experiences being transracially adopted and multiracial. And I found myself on the weekends doing hair, you know, thinking, okay, yes, I have a music training and I have um, lots of hair training because there was nobody in my hometown of Oshkosh to do my hair. So I was, got really good at hair, um, but that wasn't quite what I imagined as a, as a MSW, uh, that my biggest expertise would be hair care. But I found myself doing these mass hair care trainings um, with uh, foster parents that I was working with on how to do um, black hair and mixed race hair. And as much as I liked that, I thought, wow, this is really nuts. And so I started, you know, reading and trying to look at what the literature was on uh, not so much multiracial hair, but more so, so just, you know, how do I work with my parents beyond 
just my own personal experience. And I was really appalled at the literature base. It was it was offensive. It didn't, it either sort of was very Pollyanna and like, oh, this is so rainbow and everything's so great and multivated, you know, there are no problems and it's going to solve our the racial dilemmas of the world. Or it was like, this is awful and kids are confused and they're going to, commit suicide I like just these terrible portrayals and I thought okay so neither of these really capture and all these other people were speaking about my experience and about the experience of multiraciality of all kinds of races <laughs> this is really awful but I sort of pocketed that into my back pocket and thought okay I'm gonna have to wing it here and try to find some um, critical but balanced way to work with the families that I was working with so that when I came to do my dissertation, I decided, well, if I'm going to get through this process, I'm going to have to study something that I feel very passionate about, which I now have personal and professional experience around, and try to contribute to what I thought was deeply offensive and mono-racist portrayals of multiracial people, and also of people who weren't mixed but were living in multiracial families through transracial adoption, and try to do something just about the knowledge base that are um, that my future students and that I were drawing upon in terms of informing um, from some kind of knowledge base uh, that's empirical, our practices. And so that's how I came to do my dissertation and ultimately have quite a bit, bit of the components of my own research um, portfolio contribute to knowledge around um, multibaciality, both at the family level and the individual level. Kelly, you want to... And in that journey, Kelly and I also met each other. So, yes, and I giggle because I, I always it helps me recognize how, in some ways, our experiences are so very similar and also very different. Mm -hmm. uh, but like Gina, I was a school social worker um, working with uh, children who had been kind of removed from their home schools and put into a special school, um, and were kind of labeled very negatively, having you know behavioral um, issues or emotional issues um, on their um, IEPs. Um, so. So I recognized that I was working with, um, there was a lot of multiracial kids that I would be working with. And like Gina, I didn't have, there was hardly any information out there. And the information that was out there was very contradictory, like um, Gina said. So either we were the rainbow children who were going to push uh, America into a post-racial society, um, or it really emphasized um, a lot of kind of themes of anti-Blackness, um, which kind of, you know, would make us in in many ways uh, uh, non-Black um, or finding a way to do that. M much of it was framed from the perspectives of white parents um, who are again, wanting their children to kind of claim identities um, that are non-Black. Um, so I got into the PhD program very intentionally pursuing uh, to do work on multiraciality. Um, and I want to just mention something that Gina said. I think it's really important. And I think this is kind of our philosophy in terms of how we mentor PhD students and think about getting a PhD, is that it is very personal. And you do have to find a topic you're, that you're very passionate about uh, because this work is long, right? We've been uh, in this in academia for a very long time, and you know you have to kind of be driven. Um, so I think that's that's something uh, that we both share as well. I am um, as you're sharing about your your journey with multiracial research, I'm thinking back to gosh, 20 years ago when I was an undergrad, mm -hmm. and the literature was so 
narrow. It was so minimal. And I, I remember approaching professors with trepidation about, is this, is this a legitimate topic? Does this like, does my desire to explore this mean that I am, I have internalized racism and that I'm denying who I really am, which is like, like it, it brought up so much. And then I was actually met with the, the judgment from yep. professors who were ignorant about multiraciality. And so uh, really, like, I, I, I similarly yeah. wanted to follow a path of multiracial research, but just got knocked off of it. It was, it was too um, intimidating. Yeah. Well, so, I think that, really, that also what you just described, Madron, is exactly why then we don't have a, uh, we have such a dearth in, in multiple fields. You know, you're not in social work. And so, you know, like this happens everywhere. And we have these just really rote and problematic ways of, you know, chunking our study of race, particularly in the helping professions, into these dominant four categories that themselves are deeply problematic and mask diversity within these categories. And then, you know, people's own monoracism in the field who are, you know, the senior scholars, they've internalized that. And so there's, you know, like my, I, I was met with a similar, like, Gina, why are you trying to make this so complicated? And I'm like, because I live that. It's not, I'm not trying to make it complicated. It is this complicated. It is it's, complicated. Yes. And so I just think, you know, we do our own fields a disservice um, by discouraging junior scholars, students from the hunches that they have about important areas of study just because it's never been done before or just because it doesn't represent our own areas of study. Like what a disservice to the knowledge development in our fields that we tell students that they shouldn't study something unless it's been studied before. That's so anti-science, anti-intellectual. It's you know, like anti the purpose of universities. But I think it happens and people suffer in silence. You know, like your story um, and many stories I can think of um, where this happens that harms our, our knowledge base. Mm-hmm. 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 Gonna, you uh, answered the question I was gonna ask about. Sorry. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, we, Madrona and I, we talk a lot about language or we kind of get into language uh, a lot on the podcast and just des- in our own talks and, and mm-hmm. talking about like folks not necessarily being able to follow their hunches. One thing that I appreciate about the the work that you're doing is that you are um, introducing language because I think a lot of mixed folks probably wouldn't even have the hunches or they might mm-hmm. let, right. but not know how to talk about it or not really have a framework for really organizing their lived experience and and what's missing from you know what's on offer around them um so you know uh really you know that that both of you have had a clinical experience with mixed people and plenty of people do but you know perhaps a, a monoracial clinician isn't going to uh, isn't going to recognize um, that experience as uh, something that uh, is so much more nuanced and complex um, and really worthy of um, of, of focus and uh, you know focused attention. So um, you know that's just what's coming to me as I'm listening to you too. Um, 
Yeah, you know, one of the um, really helpful pieces of language that I have come to uh, just recently in my own career is this component of social injustice that's called epistemic injustice. And I think it's a fancy word, but really basically what it means is how is an aspect of how people are undermined based on a social identity like race from even knowing about one's own experience and talking about it on one's own terms. And they're developing a uh a lexicon, a language, to be able to then speak their experience into experience, into you know existence, and be able then to heal from it. And I think that any of us who exist in marginalized spaces, multiraciality just being one, but you could think of a lot of groups of people who for whom their experience is so not dominant, and they are they are developing in isolation from their community with regard to that social identity that they lack a language to be able to speak. And when they start to do it, even as young people, they are undermined as, no, no, that's not really, aren't you grateful? Oh, oh, but multiracial people have, you're so lucky, you know, like, and so you're undermined as a child, as you're starting to kind of figure out, mm, you know, and it starts in your body as a little kind of, huh, you know, kind of, I'm not really sure about this, but the people around you don't have this lived experience, your parents don't have it oftentimes, the school teachers oftentimes don't have it, or they've internalized their own impression because of generational biases. And so you reach adulthood and you can't even articulate on your own terms, your own experience, and it harms your development in positive ways. And it also harms your capacity to connect with people to really get the affirmation that you need to heal from the experiences of trauma you might have around these identities and even to access communities for your own resilience. And so I really feel like this epistemic just, justice and injustice, this way of understanding that social injustices aren't just physical or emotional or economic, but there's also a meaning-making injustice that happens for people that robs them from healing and a language to describe and affirm their experience is real that can itself be a trauma and itself harm you. And then you can't you can't speak. So it's it's just incredible insidiousness um, that I found recently as a very helpful tool for mixed race populations, but many other populations who experience this like diasporic identity where you're disconnected and you're oftentimes experiencing it on your own. Um, that is a special kind of injustice that I think really does apply to mixed race people, people who are adopted, you know, all kinds of folks. Um, so I just wanted to share that. I am lighting up as I hear this concept. And as you're as you're saying, yes, it's a this multiracial experience that being them denied the knowledge that we we know in our bodies is being denied and shut down and ignored and invalidated. Um, um, but also as a neurodivergent person, I can completely identify um, with that and other aspects of my identity. But um, I I absolutely love this. So that. And it makes me wonder about some other terms, such as just for you know our listeners, mono racism or yeah. critical multiraciality. What are maybe if you can define for us some of these kind of core terms that you found helpful um, as you've been as you've been theorizing multiracial identity um, and interventions in working with multiracial people. Yeah, I can take this on. I think also when I when I think about what Gina um, mentioned around 
um, thinking about how language is so important, but that often it's gatekeeped out of kind of our history, out of our writing. Um, so something that I think we're very privileged as acad academics and having access to research and information has been a rise in different terminology to describe multiracial experiences. Um, so modern racism was one to come out, I believe, in 2010. And I believe that was Marv Johnston Guerrero, who, um, uh, along with um, Kevin Nadal, had um, identified um, kind of these experiences that we have um, where, you know, people either deny reject um, or uh, other experiences of discrimination related to our multiracial identity. So this is when, you know, choose one. This is also um, where we're exoticized. Um, this is also where we're denied access um, to different um, cultural spaces because of being mixed race. So these are, uh, the word really encompasses a lot of what I think the scholars before, and particularly multiracial researchers who were, you know, doing qualitative in-depth research with multiracial people were revealing, but now we had a word right? Um, so monoracism was one. And then later in 2016, and this was by Jessica Harris, um, Dr. Harris um, uh, launched multiracial critical theory. So thinking about critical race theory, but also um, uh, recognizing also that within that is these experiences, this monoracial paradigm, or what Gina coined as monocentricity. Um, so, and this is more kind of structural and systematic when you think about how society views race um, and how it struggles or it bumps up against um, folks who live multiracially, individuals and families. Um, so it wants to kind of place us in one or, you know, one category. And also it kind of, um, I would say, facilitates the discrimination and the micro-monoracism experiences, even though they don't feel micro, that we encounter. So from you can only check one box on a form or um, I love questionnaires that ask you to, you know, choose the one race that you mostly kind of identify with. So a lot of these experiences are captured in a society um, that is, you know, um, really trying to pigeonhole people. And it's usually, I mean, if you think about it, and I think Gina and I have a personal connection with using the word white supremacy um, around this book in particular, but being able to name that um, as kind of an umbrella term to, to, that led to essentialism. So this idea of, you know, people and their race is connected to their um, their physical characteristics, how they culturally navigate the world, that there's some inherent biological connection to that. So pushing back against, I think, some of that um, though that dominant those dominant narratives has been something that we were very intentional with in our book. And I'll just say lastly, and I'm sure Gina will want to go more in depth to this, is um, choosing to say white supremacy and acknowledging that as such a problem and issue, especially when you're working um, with any individual from a marginalized racial group, but also and also multiracial people. You know, we asked that it would be included at the back description of our book. Um, and we are 
the publisher really struggled with that and didn't want to include that. And again, this was mostly um, white women social workers um, who were, you know, struggling with being able to do that. And this was in 2019, you know, which would happen to be a year before um, kind of this, you know, and I'm using air quotes, societal reckoning with um, racism. Um, to happen. So yeah, I'll just leave it there. But yeah, language is very important to us. And I think when we do our research, and when we are intentionally writing about experiences of um, being multiracial, living in multiracial families, that we are naming these terms, we are defining them um, to give ourselves a language. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Thanks so much for that. Um, you know, speaking about your book now, I'm, you know, I'm curious if if you could tell us about the origins of your book and how you came to um, decide to write it, how you came together on it, um, and how did you kind of formulate your approach to it? Yeah, well, there's probably lots of um, roads that lead to the book. <laughs> um, and so, again, don't want to make it seem like somehow it was like a decision and then we did it. So, you know, it kind of started through Kelly's and my own um professional and personal relationship and tiny little conversations about being really pissed off about, you know, various things in our own uh, profession. I think Kelly intimated to this earlier about our frustrations and our simultaneous love and hate relationship with social work um, and constantly feeling really deep sadness about, um, you know, more than just, oh, our paper didn't get accepted or our whatever didn't get accepted, that it's not sort of like this, oh, whatever, it wasn't maybe good enough, but if it, taking it personally that, you know, like we feel unabashedly members of social work, but feel also um, just stunned again and again at the refusal to sort of um, acknowledge the importance of recognizing multiraciality. So um, we decided to start smaller and had a uh, published a paper that sort of took the our profession's idea of cultural competence and its various domains and decided to map onto it. What would it mean if we did multiraciality? What would it look like if we took these monoracially discussed and monocentrically discussed domains of so-called cultural competence and um, mapped onto it? What would that look like for multiraciality? And that alone was a battle. <laughs> you know, uh, it triggered a lot of the reviewers around, you know, like, well, why do we need to do this? And why why do you not like cultural competence and why are you doing, you know, and so it was like sort of warring, but in the ether of, um, you know, journal writing and anonymous peer reviewing, um, doing that battle. And then um, ironically, after that got published, the um, publisher came sort of, I don't know, I imagine sheepishly and said, hey, would you want to write a book? You know, but at that time, Kelly, I think you had just gotten pregnant or just had Carmen and really, like, oh, yeah, whatever. You, you, just, you kind of burnt out from it. And then you maybe, I don't know, one of us was up for 10 years. So I mean, just life was happening for us. So we we're like, sure, we'll write a book, but not this year. And I don't know how many years later, um, you know, our lives were in a different place. And we're like, hey, you want to still write that book? And so we're like, okay. So we did it. I don't know. You want to add anything, Kelly? To the, did I miss anything? Um, I'm just giggling because when I think about the email that came, it was like one of those standard emails that they send to anyone who's published an article in their journal, you know, like you want to write a book, we might be interested. And Gina and I were like, yeah, yeah, we do. Yeah, we do. Actually, we have more to say. (laughs) So that's sort of how the book um, came to be. And, um, And it was really a 
I think the only other thing I'll add to it is that Kelly and I, you know, by that time had developed a really nice friendship. And I had by that time also seen a lot of friendships killed by writing together. And so I think our uh, our promise to each other was that this was not going to be done at the expense of our friendship. This was not going to be done at the expense of our family lives. This was not going to be done at the expense of our professional relationship. Um, we're one of two only in our field, most senior scholars, no, <laughs> maybe in the world, that take seriously multiraciality in our topic, in our subfields that we're interested in. And so I just did not, I wanted to model a different way of doing academic work that was deeply collaborative and relational and that we were practicing what we were going to be writing in our book and asking people to do. And so um, somewhere along the way, I don't remember how this happened, but I was like, we're going to finish our book and we're going to do it at a spa. And we're gonna we're gonna take ourselves to a spa, and we're gonna have treatment every day, and we're gonna sit by the pool, and we're gonna do things truly together, not like outside of you know with each other, and we're and we're just gonna do it in a beautiful place where we feel very cared for and nurtured, and we're gonna that's gonna be our model of knowledge development, not in a library somewhere or not hold away from our families and our dogs or children or you know we're gonna do this and we did that and I'm so proud Kelly <laughs> that we did that and now we go back there to that place um and sometimes we work and sometimes we don't but I feel very proud of not just the book but the methods and process that we um nurtured the book through um and I and I use that as an example often with my students to not separate out your parts of your life from your intellectual place because some of our I think some of the best parts of our book came out of that and we worked I mean we it wasn't that we were just feel like we really did mash up nurturing and laughing and wine and you know wellness walks all of that together um through this book so i feel very proud of kind of the hidden pieces also um that only kelly and i know but now your podcast listeners listeners know about how this book came to life so i don't know kelly you want to say anything about that process i love it i love how you said it It was very personal it was very yeah i I love Gina. It was a wonderful experience that we had together. We invested in ourselves. So again, recognizing our privilege and being able to go to a retreat place nice. and, you know, um, really focus on, you know, getting a facial and then, you know, focus on writing um, chapters on the book and thinking, I think, of an overarching theme um, that we were trying to approach. And I think you also allow for a moment where you have kind of this revelation. Um, and I remember with it for us, Gina, was when we were writing um, and thinking through things that was beyond where our discipline was. Um, a lot of this thinking around like cultural competence and stuff. And what we were talking about was something different and something unique. And so leaning into that, um, and again, this goes into kind of knowledge and thinking about language, leaning into that and naming it um, as kind of this newer process that we were already talking about and writing about and thinking about it, um, that kind of moved beyond where our profession was. And I think in order to have those moments, you have to be 
um, very vulnerable and you have to be able to point out that, you know, we don't want to just repeat the old stuff um, that we've actually, as scholars, have gone beyond kind of this thinking and this narrow way of understanding what it's like to really be attuned to um, people that you work with. And I think uh, I think that was something that was allowed to happen because we invested in ourselves. We invested in this project um, and we just really care for each other. I love hearing about this process, and it um, reminds me of a thought I was having yesterday as I'm trying to integrate more play into my life. Uh-huh. And I, I, the the thought crossed my mind: this podcast is play. Yeah, this is this opportunity to join with somebody I enjoy, and then there's spontaneity and there's novelty that arises from the place. And so that's what I'm hearing about um that your process was that going in the spa and having some wine and going on walks and out of that true spontaneity and novelty arose so so beautiful um and 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 also this new lexicon these new terms that are so helpful for our field and for multiracial people arose um so i want uh, to touch more on why cultural attunement as compared to competence why did why did you go that direction? Why was that important? Well, I can flippantly say that part for me, what really is attractive to it is my music training. That you know, like when you're playing uh, with another person or you're singing with another person that are creating music, you know, having that that perfect pitch independent of that person can cause dissonance. And so it really is this, that the beauty of the work comes in the interaction of the two people being able to come and adjust to each other. And that doesn't mean that you give up, you know, where you're starting or that other person gives up where they're starting, but it requires just this really elegant and precise listening to one another to adjust and account for and be malleable in real time across the whole period of that relationship, however long that lasts, for you to be flexible, for the other person to be flexible, to join, and that that magic of the work, the healing, the relationship happens in between, you know, and requires the other person. And so I, I just, as somebody who who has a creative sense of them through a music place that really resonates, if I will, another music turn, really resonates with me to sort of think about that as also a skill that I'm wanting to teach um, my students about how to really be present in the moment, how not to give up who you are, but how to make space for another person and to dance with them in that moment and trust that the magic will happen if you are open enough to really figure out how to have space for that other person to be there and for you to be there. And both things have to happen in a very dynamic way. And I find that to be so much more useful that, um, to of a language to talk about what social work is, what clinical work is, what pra- any practice really is with another person or other people than competence, which inv- evokes this, you know, kind of static, I I will, independent of, you know, somebody else, read a bunch of things and come to the table with my quote-unquote mastery. Um, That's just such a, I really feel like it's very Western notion, competences. It's a very individualist notion. It's a very dominant kind of domineering um, notion of what you do with knowledge that I find to be 
problematic and leading oftentimes to some of the problems that do happen in our field around white supremacy, around dominance of other another person, about the misuse of power, um, and that it's power over as opposed to power with. And so attunement for me gets much more in line with an idea of power and helping and accompaniment that is liberating as opposed to dominating. So that for me is where I think for Kelly also, I see her nodding a lot, but Kelly, what, what, um, what do you want to add to that? Absolutely nothing. That was perfect. <laughs> exactly. It, right there. You know, I'm, I'm curious to hear a little bit more, maybe through the frame of, you know, what you put forth in your research and in your book, um, what kinds of conditions need to be in place um, for multiracial folks to uh, to be forming, to be living out uh, like a, an empowered sense of identity. Yeah, that's a great question. I think I think a lot of the the stuff that's in our book, particularly around the toolkit and thinking about how to kind of empower multiracial individuals and families, um, has to do with kind of connecting with a counter space, so a safe place where um, you're with other folks, whether they be multiracial or um, they share, say, a similar kind of salient identity as yourself, where you can talk about um, the challenges, the experiences, also um, the strengths um, that are you know, that are very much um, a part of, you know, living multiracially and what does that look like? And do it in ways, I think, that um, promote um, in some ways a, a stronger sense of self without exploiting some of those past kind of stereotypes about multiracial people um, that are very much grounded in anti-Black racism when you think about folks who are mixed Black um, and say white. Um, and also that kind of push away notions of um, uh, kind of not recognizing systemic racism. So ways that, oh, when you're multiracial, you know, race isn't an issue or isn't a problem. So I think some of the things that we talk about in the book is how to determine whether a counter space is kind of safe. Um, and, you know, first acknowledging that multiracial people are everywhere, but oftentimes in our communities, there may be one or a few, there's only a few of us. So thinking about how to connect, um, we even talk about kind of online and finding spaces and places that are not perpetuating stereotypes or problems about multiracial people. And there's a ton of them. Um, I always see, you know, different spaces on Facebook um, where it's promoting mixed-race children, and it's doing it in some really problematic ways. Um, and most of these children are mixed with white, and, you know, there's this showcasing of this ideal uh, multiracial individual. Um, and again, so how do they navigate figuring out where that counter space is, um, and then how to kind of connect and get engaged with it? Um, but that was something that originally kind of, when you asked that question, kind of came to me. And I think also personally... I can say, and professionally for my, my own development, um, it's finding that space for myself. So recognizing the benefits of that when you're amongst other folks who think 
um, view and live experiences similar to yours, but also unique. Um, so being able to um, kind of find that, have your folks, right? The the people that you can text. Um, Gina and I, as we were writing this book, we would send each other gifts about, you know, the frustration of um, can I engaging this work or when we come up against gatekeeping, you know, this is, this is what it's like. Um, or being able to say this happened to me, um, this feels like this, um, and having that affirmed. So I would say that's the first thing that stands out to me, but I know Gina has more stuff to cut hit on. No, I just want to, you know, I hadn't been thinking about that um, toolkit that we include in the book and kind of how to help clinicians or even just family members think more complexly about what places actually are affirming. And that I think for, for, you know, we talk about it from the place of multiraciality, but I think it could be done with any person who has like multiple oppressed identities or complex non-binary identities that, you know, like one space may be really affirming to one part of you, but really assaultive to another. And then this other space could be really helpful to that other one, but assaulting to the other. And it's so, and I think the more that we played out this, um, I think that comes in our, where we share an eco map, um, which is something that all, I think, uh, so certainly social workers, certainly family systems, trained people um, are familiar with genograms and eco-maps and what are the different ways that you visually map out with people um, that that could be a really useful exercise for families to do together to sort of have it as an entry point conversation or clinicians or teachers to kind of get people to think hmm what parts of you in your church in your synagogue in your mosque in your um, school in your family father's side and your family's other father's side you know like what how do these spaces nurture and give you particular messages about what part of you and seeing your child and your family at multi-dimensionally so that you can kind of get a sense of you know, like how are these different spaces that we traverse through you know really nurturing what are what messages are my kids getting am i getting about who i am and different parts of me and i think it's very unusual the more you kind of do that kind of an exercise and the longer i've lived my own life i realize that there are very few spaces that really ring bells for you everywhere and that's okay like most of us exist in spaces where some part of us even if it's not hidden, it's not seen as well, or it's not, or it might be even worse, it might be harmed. And so how do we, as any adult, move through, or any child, move through spaces ready for some part of us to not be seen in a proper way, in a healthy way, in the way that we want? And that's just normal life. And so how do we get prepared for that? How do we nurture that so that we can prepare kids to um, make choices uh, of their own about moving through these different spaces as they so wish avoiding spaces, not going into spaces, um, mobilizing relationships that help you to develop in the ways that you want to. And that that's just normal life, that no, no, nobody gets space. Nobody gets a relationship. Nobody gets a partnership. Nobody gets, you know, like that just doesn't happen. I just think it's more pronounced for those of us who our differences um, happen to fall on fault lines that are wildly binary, that have like opposites i think it's it's more pronounced that way but i think when you reflect back on it most people can relate to being in a space where they felt they weren't necessarily seen and how do we nurture that as it's okay that you know like not everybody's going to be able to see you fully but how are you going to make choices about the spaces and relationships that you have going through your life so that you can get really important aspects of you um nurtured thank you and that segues I think well into us 
moving backwards through the book, um, well, actually, I'll say that what I'm hearing is there is a need for this deep affirmation of our experience and also the cultivation of resilience because we're not always going to be deeply affirmed. Um, and so it's important for us to be able to bounce back and then find the resources that we need to support us. Um, so in the, in the walking back, back to theorizing multiracial identity. And I'm sorry, I'm going to ask a really big question because I don't know how to make it smaller, um, which is there are four component parts of theorizing multiracial identity. You're drawing from four different theoretical models. And I'm wondering if somehow you can lay that out yeah. <laughs> for our listeners. And also listeners, please buy the book. It's phenomenal and it will take money reads as you absorb uh, there's a lot of information that's very helpful um but this is going to be a, a preview so again if you don't mind um introducing our readers to the four theories that you draw from as you theorize multiracial identity yeah well i had to turn to my page <laughs> so i make sure i remember all of them and say them properly so um, so yeah, the four the four ones that we talk about, and this was something that we actually did do at our spa vacation. And so you should know the um, that these are not um, all inclusive. These were ones that we felt were both dominant in our own fields um, and likely dominant, um, whether explicit or implicit um, heuristics that clinicians or you know social workers or even people in the educational field are likely um, schooled to know in ways that oftentimes um, can simultaneously be a help to to clinicians, but also do a lot of monocentricity or what we didn't define mono washing, where you just kind of make everybody the same. And that happens, you know, like all black families are this way. And it's like, okay, yeah, no, but there's Jamaicans and there's Africans and there's South Americans. And, you know, like there's all kinds of people who have black heritage, even um, that are mixed ethnicity and multicultural and diasporic. So, so I'll just get us started by saying the four and then maybe Kelly will split them up um and talk about them <laughs> um so we all so we all get a chance to speak so we've got um resilience theories um we might think about these in terms of risk and resilience we could also think about youth de uh, positive youth development theories is falling in this so that's um a big bucket and then we have multi-dimensionality and intersectionality kelly and i ourselves argued quite a bit about should we just say intersectionality but we really wanted to both draw on theories that had um come to to be very dominant and more critical theory realms around intersectionality and how intersectional how oppressions can be intersectional but also recognize particularly for people who are non-binary and people who are uh, multiracial that um, we are multidimensional beings that we have privileges and oppressions and that all of us have privileges and oppressions and we wanted to bring that in to just show how very complex um, we are as human beings and not all of us are oppressed on all domains of our social identities and that that matters how we move through the world life course theory that this is that a racial identity development is a, a developmental thing you don't become 18 and age out of multiraciality and so um, there are new um, things that happen for people as parents die as people decide to partner as people decide to have children or find that they don't have children or as you know just life happens. You move to a different place and all of a sudden some other part of your identity um, becomes really dominant and you all of a sudden have to become conscious and catch up around that kind of identity that is seen in a new context. And then ecological. So seeing that, you know, like we are not 
developing identity in our heads, that these are, you know, socially negotiated, politically negotiated, historically situated identities. Um, and so our ecologies that we're doing identity within and that we're doing family within really matter and um, that we don't could just choose quote unquote, our identities that are many times they are chosen for us. Um, and that makes um, makes our identity work very public and negotiated as well as it is private. So um, I'll stop there. Those are the or those are the orientations. But Kelly, do you want to take up one and maybe talk about it a little bit more? Or <laughs> Yeah, actually, I want to point out, first of all, this was one of the hardest chapters to write. Oh, my gosh. And I think that has a lot to do with how we traditionally think about and and teach um, about theory. Um, and I think this idea of you find one and you kind of use it as a guide. And so we had multiple versions where we were writing about, here's all the, you know, ecosystem kind of theories. Here's all these kind of theories. But what we were really wanting to help um, helping professionals do was be able to decipher whether or not any theory, right? Any theory that maybe broadly fits in those four categories, if it's the right lens to be able to see and view and understand the complexity um, that relates to race more generally and also with multiracial people. Um, so I thought that was a really unique approach. Um, so we're we're big advocates for theoretical plur pluralism. So this idea of using multiple theories. Um, and in this case, when you think about um, multiracial people, and as you'll see, you know, if you if you get the book and you read the chapter, um, we talk about not only the strengths of these different these four different theories that we selected, but also the areas where they struggle to be able to connect and see um, holistically multiracial individuals and families. So when we talk about developmental theory, and I believe I heard on one of your other podcasts, this idea that, you know, you go through life and then you spit out and you have an identity and it's multiracial and you feel good about yourself. So we challenge about how multiracial people can and do change how they racially identify um, throughout their lives. It's not linear, right? It's flexible. Um, so again, when we're thinking about and looking at the applicability of a particular theory when we're trying to help it guide how we practice and approach practice with multiracial individuals and families, we have to be able to critique those theories to see if they situate um, or, or help you recognize certain aspects of multiracial identity that isn't just focused kind of on these negative assumptions, right? Um, so a lot of the stuff that came out of psychodevelopment was this idea that, you know, we are, um, uh, that there was a pathology around being mixed race and that that was connected to this biological notion of, you know, being a hybrid. Um, and so finding ways for um, helping professionals to use theory in an appropriate critical way to kind of guide and think through their practice, their research with multiracial people, um, and even themselves um, and thinking about their own identities. Maybe you can share more about the, let's see, the practice model that you talk about. Uh -huh. Maybe you're going to say that, but just no, no, I was not. Like, I, that, but I can say that in that, um, Maybe I'll weave it into what I was going to say as, as kind of a, a reinforcement of this practice model that I think, you know, now being 55 years old, <laughs> I think that um, so much of what we wanted to put into our practice model was this sort of what AD, Adrian Marie Brown talks about as emergent strategy. And that, you know, I think if we, I was doing this interview 
way a long time ago at the beginning of my career, I would have maybe described things in much more um, kind of you know, like, first you engage, then once you step on that stool, then you, you know, ferret around and try to figure out what the deal is. And I would have been still very relational about that and very, you know, kind of co-constructive. But I think now, and then you, you know, figure out what it is and you send people off to apply it to their life and then you evaluate it in some way and off you go. And I think that, um, I guess one of the things I want people who are mixed race to sort of know is that, you know, life and practice is a lot more messy than that. And that, um, and that there's joy in that messiness and that even the, and there's joy even in the pain of your life. That, that sounds really weird to say, but that with the benefit of being 55 and looking back um, and then finding taking initiative, I think, as a young adult to build my own community and feeling liberated to be, to be able to do that. But I think earlier in my life, it felt very um, ungrounding to be different in so many ways that I was. And I suffered in silence for a really long time because I had other areas of my life that seemed like they were going well. And so I hid in that. <laughs> and everybody thought I was really, you know, resilient already. And there were whole parts of me that weren't very resilient at all. Um, but that at some point along the way, I just decided people weren't going to do that for me. And I felt very uh, liberated by that also to be able to do my dissertation how I wanted and then my own stubbornness to build my family how I wanted and to build my friendships how I wanted and to build my identity how I wanted. Um, and that people started coming to me then from that place. And it feels very powerful now to have an outward and inward life that, um, that has a lot of synergy for that. But that can only come if you trust that you start from a place of your strengths and what you know to be true. And that can only come if you trust some of the relationships that just feel good for reasons that you may not be able to explain right now. And I guess our practice model sort of gives that life on a professional level of like trust that the other person has answers that they may not quite have the language to do and that you have some skills and that with them together, you can build something really amazing that is healing and that is nurturing that neither of you at the beginning of that process have the language or the knowledge to do. But that if you have trust, small T trust with another person that together you can build something beautiful that you can do that in your life you can do that um, in your family you can do that with other people and that it's an incredibly beautiful way of practicing that can be simultaneously healing to you and also healing for another person but it is slow and it is going through a forest that sometimes is very dark um, and that there'll be little little gifts along the way that will tell you that you're on the right track and you'll make mistakes and there will be hurt along the way. Um, and that doesn't mean that that's necessarily a sign that you're that you're in the wrong path. Um, and so I think our practice model of trying to get people to see that it is a process, that you loop back and you relearn the thing, you have to re-engage sometimes in the middle um, when you've had a little disruption, that the re-engagement has to be done again um, and that you pick it up and you have faith that you can do this, but only with other people, that this is not a solo journey, that this is a, always a team sport. So with that, I will I will close. Kelly, anything you want to say about our our model and closing out. I will just say that this book is a culmination. The model in many ways is a culmination of our 
personal experience, our professional experience, both as clinicians um, and social workers, and also our kind of embeddedness in the research and the literature that's out there. Um, but I really appreciated what Gina had mentioned. Um, and this was at a podcast a long time ago where we wrote this for ourselves in many ways. Um, our, our, our inner children that um, never had kind of uh, access to a social worker or helping professional that was really thinking through our experiences to do this work. Um, so I think when we came up with the different phases and folks that read the book, a lot of this will be very familiar. You're already doing a lot of this work. Yeah. Um, so yeah, again, it's very affirming. Um, and also you're going to come out learning maybe um, a little bit more about how to push it for forward a little bit or be able to recognize some of the biases that you brought to the table. Um, and again, not just from a white centric lens where we're assuming. And again, we we're very intentional not to write assuming that the social worker was white or the counselor or the therapist. Um, so, and then I think the biggest thing that we emphasize is this work is lifelong. Um, so this is, uh, again, like Gina mentioned, um, you're going to have to re-engage different phases. Um, sometimes this work is going to be too hard. Um, sometimes you're going to have to go back and go forward and thinking through this stuff. Um, so I think, again, it's a commitment. Um, it's that dance that Gina referred to when you think about attunement um, that is so important. So I think for, for readers of the book, they're going to get a whole bunch of stuff that's feeling affirming to who they are, new information that maybe they didn't know about multiracial individuals and families, and even basic tools that they're probably already using, but maybe didn't think about how to use them in a way that will really allow and empower multiracial individuals and families. We are so lucky to have had you as Yes, my goodness, 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 goodness. A wealth of knowledge and just the dynamism that you have for this work is so, it's like intoxicating. It's really inspiring. Um, well, thank you for this space. And I think that was the other thing. Like this is, and I love that you recognize that this is your counter space, your play area. Yeah. Um, because we didn't have these spaces, um, you know, uh, when we were clinicians, when we were doing this work, we didn't have them. And even as academics, you know, with gatekeeping and trying to find um, more folks that are thinking about this and doing this work. So just was thrilled to see that this is a space um, and being able to kind of access a podcast and dialogue about this was super important. So we are very thankful that you had us on here and that you have this space. Yes. Thank you so, so much for, you know, just bringing the book to life in this way and, um, yeah, just sharing with us your processes and, uh, you know, just life lessons here, really. Um, you know, it's, um, it's just, uh, you know, like my friend said, just so inspiring and, um, and thank you just deeply for the work that you're doing and, uh, for, you know, the resilience that, that you have in um, mm -hmm. pursuing this. You know, um, you know, amid all kinds of different um, challenges. So, mm -hmm. we we really really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for giving us a platform to speak with you. Ed, thank you. I I deeply exhaled when you said that. Um, just thanking us for that work and 
we do face a lot of barriers and thinking about this stuff. So I just, I just wanted to say thank you for recognizing that and for, like Gina said, giving us a platform. And hopefully we'll see you at CMRS um, yeah. as well. We did submit as well. So hopefully oh. we'll all be there and be able to kind of get together. Are there any um, events or books or anything that you would like to plug? Uh, any ways that uh, people can learn more about you and your work? Tell you anything you want. I was thinking of your center, Gina, and some of the the talks oh. and different things that you're doing there. And yeah, so I can um I can just share. There's um so I as the uh, faculty director of the Center for the Study of Race, Politics, and Culture, I've been having these conversations with Kelly about you know like how do we use this platform also as a way of really launching both um knowledge but also a method like you know kelly and i do a lot of thinking about what does it mean to create knowledge as people who are insiders to the population and in our fields that's very pathologized as um, not being very rigorous or scientific and so i just encourage people to check out some of the things that we do at csrpc at the university of chicago and um kelly and i are in the very process of maybe in the spring or summer um doing some things around I'm launching the uh, with my colleague who's also biracial um, and is also adopted at the race center so the executive director my co-director um, is a, a mixed race uh, adapted person but adopted uh, from in a black family so we are deciding to get into trouble around the black adoption project so that's going to get launched in the spring she's a filmmaker an award-winning winning filmmaker um, and I'll be having Kelly come up to do some trainings that hopefully we will uh, videotape and make public um, around um, poly autoethnography and and thinking around how do we bring multiple voices. You know, I think that's an issue in multiraciality around, you know, really kind of reverting, you heard, heard us do it ourselves, of reverting back to black white experience. And that's because that's our experience. Um, but there's a whole lot of experiences of multiraciality that don't involve white people at all in the creation of multiraciality. And so really thinking about how do we do polyvocal articulations of, of mixed raceness that don't center whiteness, don't center blackness even, uh, and really get the fullness of what are all the ways that we experience mashups of race and ethnicity and culture that is so needed in a way that, you know, doesn't get us to have to agree that we have very different experiences of that. And that is okay. And that is great. And it's beautiful. And so um, we'll be we'll be doing some some of that stuff starting 2024. So I encourage you all to Look that up and look up Kelly's webpage. She has a million things. She's much more good on social media than I am. So um, you can follow her um, and I follow her. So, um, yeah, check it out. Great. Well, we will put links in the show notes. Great. Thank you. You've been listening to Multiracial Mental Health, a monthly podcast where mixed therapists center and explore the lived experience of multiracial people, couples, and families. Multiracial Mental Health, the podcast, is an ACAST production and a project of the Multiracial Mental Health Clinician Directory at www.multiracialmentalhealth.com. Mental health is a journey, and we're here to support. If you've enjoyed the episode, be sure to like us, share the show, and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and all the usual places where content can be found. 